course, I'd be playing basketball yesterday when I get injured. Um, my wife likes to remind me, she's, honey, you're not 20 anymore, in case you didn't realize. Um, but I'm thankful because I definitely value and will remember what good legs and, and, and two healthy feet stand for. <laughs> Listen to this portion of God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to praise to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Earl. I, I think what everybody's wondering is, did you win? Because <laughs> if you won, it was probably all worth it, right? So uh, hello, everybody. It's so great to see you back, and Happy New Year. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. And speaking of New Year, um, we are kicking off this new year with a, a new series, as Pamela mentioned, uh, entitled, Who Am I? And it's going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, which is one of the most amazing books in the Bible. I've been wanting to do a series on it for years, and now we finally have the chance. And speaking of New Year, how many of you have developed some New Year's resolutions? You made some New Year's resolutions. I see a few hands. And uh, usually the tradition of making resolutions is to take some time... Uh, in those remaining days of the previous year or the beginning of the new year, and you reflect upon the year that you just experienced. And, and you start asking questions about, you know, what were the aspects of this last year that were re really meaningful to me? Uh, what was good about last year? And what are the things that, you know, weren't so great? And how could I adjust things in my life so that this coming year is the best year yet? What can I do? What sort of resolutions can I make? And typically, you know, I've talked with a lot of people about the types of resolutions they've made, and I, I hear a lot of common themes. Um, for instance, people will say that they, they want to lose weight. Uh, that's a popular one. Or they want to eat better, more nutritious uh, some people say they want to be more disciplined than the previous year. Uh, they want to reduce their stress, their stress levels. They want to spend more time with friends and family and, and reprioritize their lives so that they can do that a little more effectively. And the list goes on. And these are all really good resolutions. They are good 
resolutions. And I think they will move you closer to where you want to be. But what I want to ask you is this. How many of you started with the question, who am I? Who am I? What is my true identity and my purpose? Why has God created me? Because that really needs to be the starting point if you want to achieve what God is calling you to, if you really want to live the life that God intended for you, if you want to make the most of every opportunity. And interestingly, the book of Ephesians is filled with answers to a lot of those questions. And so for the next three months, actually 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at different aspects of our identity each week. And we're going to drill down and we're going to try and uh, embed those truths in our lives so that the enemy can't take anything from us that is rightfully ours. Okay? So this is going to be a good series. And I'm so glad that you can be part of it. So let's begin today by doing a quick overview of the book of Ephesians. Some of you are very familiar with it, but maybe others not so much. So Paul wrote this letter. It was actually a letter to the church in Ephesus in A.D. 60, roughly A.D. 60. And he's writing uh, from prison, which is interesting because it's a very positive, uplifting letter. And you would think that if you were writing from prison, you would be lamenting about everything that's going wrong and how difficult life is. And not, but that's not what Paul's doing. He's transcending his situation and he's looking at the positive. And what he's really wanting the Ephesian church to understand is their true identity. And what he says, or what he starts out with, is that you are chosen, you are loved, and most importantly, you were chosen before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the earth. Isn't that amazing? That God chose you before the foundations of the world. He also calls the church to be unified and how important it is to be unified as a church and as believers. Now, this was important because the city of Ephesus was the center or a primary center of pagan worship at that time. Temples to a variety of gods stood in testimony of the individualism of the people, and it was rampant within this culture. In everything from commerce to worship, people were in it for themselves. It was all about me and what I can get. And Paul is calling these, these people to unify, to stand out in the midst of the crowd, to do something in alignment with what God would want, even if it's counter to the culture. So this is an incredibly fitting place for the church to receive a letter like this. It must have been very convicting and affirming at the same time. It's so important for us to know our identity as well, and so we need to look at that. Now, in sports, teamwork almost always overcomes individual skill. If you look at the most winning teams throughout the history of sports, it's not always the most talented teams that win. It's usually the teams that play well together, teams that are unified. And players must learn 
to appreciate and complement each other's strengths and talents and then play as one. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's just amazing to watch. John Wooden, arguably the greatest basketball coach in history, began each season reviewing the most basic fundamentals of basketball. He would sit his players down, and he would take a basketball, and he would say, this is a basketball. And that's where he would start. And what's interesting about that is he was dealing with some of the most accomplished players in the league, people with amazing skill, or they wouldn't be there. He recruited a lot of these people. But what he knew is that if you get the fundamentals... And you can learn how to be unified. And you can play together as a team. And you recognize your individual strengths and how they play uh, in concert with one another. You're much more likely to win. What he recognized was that being unified is more important than talent. And the Apostle Paul recognized this same thing about the church. You see, church was, uh, you know, kind of a new thing. And Paul was planting churches all over the place. And he was learning, you know, what makes churches successful, what, what enables them to thrive. And one of these themes that kept coming up was being unified. And so rather a local congregation or a worldwide body of believers, the church is made up of people with various temperaments, various backgrounds, but if they know their identity and they know how to become unified, amazing things happen. Uh, look around the room today at the diversity that is present in this room and the various skills that are represented among us. Imagine what we could accomplish if we were unified and we were playing on each other's strengths and abilities uh, in the best way possible. There's no end to what we could do. And that's what Paul is trying to glean and instill uh, in these people in Ephesus. Now, when we know our identity, it changes the way that we interact with God. It changes the way that we see ourselves. And it changes the way that we interact and engage with other people. If we see ourselves, for instance, if we see ourselves as sinners saved by grace, simply doing the best that we can so that when we die, hopefully we'll make it into heaven, that's going to impact the way that we interact with God, with self, and with others. And we'll be missing out on God's blessing for us in the here and now. But if we know our identity from God's perspective, that changes everything. Typically, it puts us in a difficult or challenging situation because what ends up happening is we know what God says, we know what's in the scriptures, and we want to believe what God has said about us, what God has declared about us, but it doesn't always feel the way God describes. Sometimes we feel more like a sinner. We don't always feel chosen, but yet Scripture clearly tells us that we are chosen before the foundations of the earth. So the question is, do we want to go with what God says 
or how we feel. We feel like sinners, we look like sinners, and sometimes we even act like sinners. But what God says is we're saints. He says that you're a saint. You might say, well, how is that possible? How could I be considered a saint when I take a look at my life and all I see is the brokenness and the sin and the patterns of behavior that are not in alignment with God? That is not characteristic of a saint. And yet God says, no, you are a saint. Now, he isn't saying that you won't sin or that you won't fall into sin, that you won't be challenged by sin. What he's saying is your sin does not define you. Your sin does not define you. See, God doesn't see you as a sinner saved by grace. You've probably heard that phrase before. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But that's not the way God sees you. He sees you as a saint who happens to sin. And those are two very different things. When we know ourselves, we can step into the identity that God intended for us. We can live victoriously, and we can find out what our purpose is. And when we know our identity and our purpose, and we know what God called us to, and we start to unify with other believers, there's no stopping us. There's no limitations on what God can do through us as individuals and as a church. Now, Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, the Greek word for choose, and I want to focus in on on this one word today, that we are chosen. The Greek word for choose is eklektos, and it means that God picked or elected or predestined you For himself. And Paul tells us that he did this before the creation of the world because he loves you. And this is really the main point of this whole message. The whole point of this passage is to to enable you to see just how deeply you are loved by God. Now, there's a lot of other stuff in here that can kind of create some confusion and some challenges as we read through this. For instance, predestination. Many churches over the years have been divided on this issue alone. Predestination. Are we, are we predestined or do we have free will? And churches will usually line up on one side or the other. But really the passage is not about that. But having said that, I think it's worth spending some time on the doctrine of predestination because it comes up so often. And I think you've probably been challenged with it or if you haven't, you will be. It's a tricky question, and the two views seem to be opposing. Those who emphasize free will, for instance, if they were to look at this passage that Earl read a little earlier, they would look at the passage and they would say that in the very beginning, God looked down through the centuries, and he saw you. He saw you, and because of his foreknowledge, He knew that you would accept Christ by your own free will. He knew that you would do that by your own free will. And because he knew you would do that in advance, he was able to predestine you or choose you back then to be predestined and set apart before the creation of the world so that you would spend eternity with him. 
Okay, that's the, the free will perspective. And it sounds really good. It sounds really good because it, it seems like it's reconciling the whole idea of being predestined and yet there's still free will. But there are some challenges with this view that I want to look at. Primarily, the main challenge is that God is not doing the choosing ultimately when it comes to our salvation. We are doing the choosing. And that's problematic because if we do the choosing, that means that our actions are dependent upon our salvation and we're not saved by grace, but by works. And we know from the larger body of scripture that we're saved by grace and grace alone. That God chose us, that he wooed us into a relationship. So how do we reconcile this? Those who emphasize predestination suggest that before the creation of time, having nothing to do with what you would say or do or think, God made a sovereign choice. He made a sovereign choice to save or adopt you into his kingdom as his child. He predestined you. And because of his choice, you are guaranteed salvation. That sounds pretty good too. It's all God. But the challenge with that view is that first, if we are predestined to be saved by God, well then by default that means that there are others who are predestined to spend eternity apart from God. And that doesn't sound like something that a loving God would do. How do you reconcile that? You, you can't. And secondly, we know in scriptures that our actions are taken into account, that God considers the things that we do. He considers the things that we say. And at times, um, there are consequences for those actions. And at the end of time, we will be judged based on our actions. We'll be held accountable for the things that we've said and done. But if you don't have free will... How could you possibly be held accountable for the things that you've done? Because you're more like a puppet. Right? So there's challenges with both of the primary views in the way that we typically look at them. The author Isaac Bashevis Singer was once asked whether he believed in free will or predestination. And he responded by saying, well, we have to believe in free will. We have no choice. Do you catch that? See, this is a challenging concept. It's hard to get our mind around this. It's hard to reconcile these two views. But based on the whole body of Scripture, uh, we can't ignore either of them. We can't ignore either of them. Paul is very clear that we've been predestined. He, He spells it out perfectly. But he also is very clear about the fact that we have free will. So we have to figure out how to reconcile this. Or maybe we can't figure it out, more importantly. The way I see it is that we're free, but our freedom is limited. Our freedom is limited because it can never contradict the sovereignty of God. Now, how does that play out? Uh, Well, it's like a father who say he's traveling in the minivan on a trip with his kids, and they're hungry. Everybody's hungry. And so he says to the kids, where would you guys like to eat for lunch? 
And the kids all say, McDonald's, McDonald's. We want to eat at McDonald's. I want a Happy Meal. You know, I love McDonald's. And so the father's thinking, yeah, that's good. We'll go to McDonald's. But then he remembers that in his wallet, he has 50% off coupons for Burger King. And he is responsible for being a good steward, for maintaining the fiscal uh, stability of his family. And so he makes the sovereign choice to take everybody to Burger King. So the kids still have free will, but their free will is getting trumped by the sovereignty of their father. It gets vetoed in sovereign favor of the Whopper. You see how that works? So what we need to do is recognize that we have freedom, but it's limited. Because God is ultimately all-powerful, not us. And there are certain things that he might want to do in this world or in our lives that we wouldn't even comprehend. We couldn't even begin to comprehend it. And so what we have to do then is embrace the mystery of God. And it's good that God is mysterious. Sometimes it's frustrating, but it's good that he, he is mysterious. Now, when it comes to doctrinal issues like predestination versus free will, we need to be even more open to the mystery of God because those two doctrines are very difficult to reconcile. And I've never heard two opposing views actually come together and say, we, la- we arrived, we, we got it. And, and Deuteronomy 29, 29 may hint at this when it says, the secret things belong to God. They belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Okay, so what this means is that God has revealed certain things to us. Certain things that he believes would be beneficial or helpful to us, things that would help us to grow, things that would help us in our walk, things that would help us to align our lives with his vision for us. But there are also certain things that he has withheld from us because he doesn't think those things would be good for us. They wouldn't be helpful for us or we, or we wouldn't be able to comprehend them. They would just be confusing and difficult for us to, to, to deal with. It's like the relationship between a child and a parent, a young child and a parent. As a parent, there are many things that my daughter, who's five years old now, will ask me, and I can't always respond to her in a way that's going to satisfy the question that she's asking. Because I know that the answer that she really is looking for is beyond her comprehension. It would be more difficult for her to even try and explain it. And so what I end up doing is saying, honey, you just have to trust me on this. Now, I don't give an answer. Things like, daddy, can the cat take a bath with me? (laughs) No. Well, why, dada? (laughs) Honey, you're just going to have to trust me. Now, in her mind, it's a wonderful idea. In her mind, the cat will enjoy it. She will enjoy it. We've got bubble bath, shampoo, 
But I know from experience, having washed cats in my experience, that it doesn't always go the way you intend. Dadia, why do I have to wear my helmet when I ride my scooter? Why do I have to stay buckled up when I'm in the car? See, none of the answers that I offer her are going to satisfy. And so I just say, honey, trust me on this. You know, just listen to dad. dad. There's going to be a time in the future that you, that you understand. But right now you just need to trust me. And parents know that their understanding of the world far surpasses that of their young children. But which do you think is greater? The gap between a young child and his or her parent or the gap between us and the creator of the universe. There's a big gap. It's a big gap, and and sometimes we forget how big that gap is. And so we start saying, God, you know, I wish you would start, you know, coming to your senses and doing things my way. You know, and we start to lay out a vision for God. And, and sometimes we act as though we have a handle on certain things that we don't really have a handle on. Uh, we throw terms around as if we have them all figured out. But the depth of our understanding is always limited by our experience. It's always limited by our experience. For instance, we might think that we understand the concept or the doctrine of predestination. But the prefix pre in predestination indicates that some action or some event took place at a certain time because that's the way we experience time. We experience time in a linear fashion. If we consider our lives, we think about the things that happened to us in the past, the things that we're currently experiencing in the present, and we're looking forward to the things that are coming in the future. And so when we think about a term like predestination... We're thinking about a time in the past that God did something that affects us in the present or in the future. But that's not the way that God sees time. That's not the way that God experiences time. You see, God experiences time outside of time and space. Well, that really changes the way, you know, predestined plays, being predestined plays out from God's perspective. In 2 Peter 3.8, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. I mean, right away, you're just like, what? How can that be? Because that's not our experience. We can't experience reality the way God experiences reality. So does God know our future? Of course he does. Because he sees everything at once. He experiences the past and the present and the future simultaneously. Whoa. That's amazing. But that's God. That's not our experience. He's not hemmed in by the way we see the world or that we we grapple with, with life or engage in the things that are happening in and around us. So the concept of predestination is very different for God than it is for you and me. There are mysteries about God that are impossible for us to understand because of things like this. But what we do know, which is far more important than trying to get predestination nailed down, 
is the truth that God is trying to convey through this passage of Scripture. And that is that you are loved, that you are chosen. And that's what God is wanting you to experience, to, to, to come to terms with, because that will change your life. That will change your ability to interact with God, with yourself, and with others in profound ways. There are profound implications to being chosen and loved by God. So what does it mean to be chosen by God? When we are chosen, um, you are labeled as God's. He chooses you and labels you as his own. And Paul uses a word for this that, he, that we frequently use in our society called adoption. You are adopted. When you are chosen, you are simultaneously adopted. And when a person is adopted, and by the way, this was Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, and so he's referencing adoption from, from the perspective of the Romans. Because adoption was a, a practice that was very common among the Romans, and the, you know, the Ephesians would have known how adoption plays out in that culture. And what it means is that they, when you were adopted in Roman culture and you took on the name of your parents, you would become legal heirs to everything that they owned, everything that belonged to them. All the authority that they had in their name now belongs to you because you are the same as any biological problem, uh, uh, child in the eyes of the law. The adopted child would have all the privileges that came with the new name. And so what this is saying is when you are adopted or chosen by God, you become a son or a daughter of the king. You are royalty. And if you are royalty, you have access to everything that heaven has to offer. That's an amazing place to be. That changes our identity, potentially, when we grasp this. The moment you receive Jesus, the moment you are chosen by God, you become heirs of God. Now, I heard a story about a young boy who was away at summer camp, and he was getting teased relentlessly because he was adopted. All the kids were laughing at this little boy, you're adopted, you're adopted. And the boy said to these folks, these other children, you know what? I'm glad that I'm adopted. Because my parents chose me. Your parents got lumped with you. <laughs> and that is a truth about adoption. You see, it is possible to be born into a family that does not want you. But it is not possible to be adopted into a family that doesn't want you. So if you are an adopted child of God, it's because God wants you. And he's gone to great lengths to ensure that you would be his. 
You were chosen before the foundations of the earth. And you were loved by God in such a profound way that he did everything necessary to ensure that he would be with you for eternity. He sent his only son as a ransom for you so that the price of the sin and the brokenness in your life would be paid for so that there wouldn't be any reason that would keep you from spending eternity with God in heaven. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. And because we were chosen and we've been adopted into the family of God, we have access to all the same things that Jesus has access to. Can you imagine? I mean, Scripture says greater things you will do than even I do. And that was Jesus talking. And the reason why he could say that is because you were chosen. And you were grafted into this kingly family. And you get to experience all the resources in the same way that Jesus did. And he gives you the authority here and now to start walking that out in your relationship with self, in your relationship with God, and in your relationship with others. So let me challenge you with this. As you're thinking about your New Year's resolutions, and you're thinking about the ways that you'd like to tweak your life so that it would be more productive, that it would be more fulfilling, that it would align better with the vision that you have for yourself, I hope that you will start by asking the question, who am I? What is my purpose, and what does God say when it comes to that question? Because if you get that right, everything else flows from there. And God says that you are chosen, that you are loved, that you are adopted, and that he is mighty to save. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this truth. It is uh, such a challenging passage of Scripture to get our arms around, and yet the moral or the point is abundantly clear. And I think that the enemy tries to get us to focus on the peripheral issues that are not important. But what you want us to do is focus in and dig down and embrace the truth of this passage, which is, We are your beloved and that you've gone to great lengths to ensure that we would be able to spend eternity with you. And there's no extent to your love and all the brokenness in our lives, all the sin in our lives, well, that's already been taken care of because of what Christ has done. There's nothing keeping us from the love of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.